0: In the 17th and 18th century, there was a naval phrase that was coined. It was the phrase, shot across the bow. Uh, You can imagine that we've said that phrase in all kinds of settings, but when it was originally coined, it would be when two ships would find each other in the ocean, and and in order to identify themselves, to show that one was ready for battle, or even to give a, a warning shot to one that looked like it was the aggressor, you would fire a cannonball over the front end of the ship, the bow of the ship, and try to gain the attention of that vessel, a shot across the bow. In Mark chapter nine, Dr. Michael Heiser says that Jesus Christ is issuing a shot across the cosmic bow of the universe. I love this idea that there is a warning signal, a a, a shot that is trying to garner everyone's attention and not just physical, but in the supernatural and the spiritual realm as well. Let me read it to you, it's in Mark chapter nine, right after Peter gives his famous declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. We find this, Mark chapter nine, verse two. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed in front of them and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, because he did not know what he should say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Then suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What a great story. We call this the the Mount of Transfiguration And Jesus is up there and he transforms and we have Elijah and Moses, Peter, James, and John. And you might be asking yourself, Russell, I I don't see a warning shot. I I don't even see anybody who's an aggressor. These are all friendlies on top of the mountain, right? I mean, Elijah's a good guy, Moses is a good guy, Jesus is of course a good guy, Peter, James, and John, they're good guys. Like, where's the shot? Where's the bow? Where's the aggressor? Where's the warning? Great questions, but I, I think they're found in, in the geography of the text. Some things that probably just don't jump out to us as we read this 2,000 years later. But let, let me draw your attention back. And in Mark chapter eight, verse 27, it says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. I, w- I wanna show you this on the map because it'll be important for us to identify what mountain Jesus is on. As you can see, there is a circle up there north of the Sea of Galilee. There's Caesarea Philippi, and right to the north of it is Mount Hermon. Now Mount Hermon is is where I think this went down. I, I think this is where Jesus took Peter, James, and John and revealed himself. And the reason why I think this is important because of what this mountain represented. Now, now, mountains throughout the ancient Near East were incredibly important as mountains symbolized this place as a bridge between heaven and earth, the spiritual and the physical. I mean, if you think about Genesis chapter 11 and, and, and the, one of the amazing stories in the, the early chapters of our Bible is when mankind got together to build this massive tower called the Tower of Babel so that they could be like God. They thought if if we could get up high enough, then we can transcend the spiritual and the physical. The higher the mountain, the better, the more mystical. And that's what Mount Hermon is. Some 10,000 feet high, massive mountain, the highest mountain in Israel by far. And so this is the place where Jesus ascends. The reason that's also important is because for thousands of years, Mount Hermon has been a mystical place viewed by all kinds of religions and cultures as a place where their gods would be. We know in Deuteronomy and in Judges, Mount Hermon's not just called Mount Hermon, but it's Baal Mount Hermon where they would worship Baal. We know that from the, the cultures of Bashan and the Canaanites. We also know that this place would have had Mesopotamian cultural ties and religious ties as as the Anunnaki gods of the Mesopotamians, they were believed to to meet at the top of Mount Hermon. We also know that the Babylonians, that they thought the Apkalu, these, these gods descended, and this is where they landed at the top of Mount Hermon. And then in Jesus's day, The the god Pan, the the god of Rome, Zeus, this is where his domain was. Matter of fact, as you read through all of the archaeological finds and as they've excavated in and around the foothills and the mountain itself, there have been all kinds of sanctuaries and carvings and engravings to show that throughout history, people have worshipped deities on this mountain. Uh, let me read to you what one scholar uh, or a first-century historian says. Eusebius says this: Until today, the mount in front of Panias and Lebanon is known as Hermon, and it is respected by nations as a sanctuary, a place for their gods. That's what Eusebius said. One of these early church historians. Another scholar says this, more than 20 temples have been surveyed on Mount Hermon and its environs. This is an unprecedented number in comparison with other regions of the Phoenician coast. They appear to be ancient cult sites of the Mount Hermon population and represent the Canaanite Phoenician concept of open air cult centers dedicated evidently to the celestial gods. God's. That's where Jesus has gone up on top of. This place that for all the surrounding area for millennia have viewed as a place where the gods and the deities of their surrounding cultures have met. This bridge between heaven and earth and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on top of this ground zero, the bow, if you will. And he's gonna give the shot. So, got it again. After six days, verse two, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone, and he was transformed in front of them. Here's the shot Jesus Christ doesn't just go up on top of the mountain, but now the shot is, is that he is revealing himself, he is transforming himself. And what's the transformation? Verse three says, his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And then all of a sudden, Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Jesus Christ transforms, his, his glory is displayed. It, it's not that he changes clothes It's not that there's just some bright light. It's that he is now embodying the glory of God, his presence. That's what Jesus is doing. He is revealing that he's not just a man. He's not just the savior, a Messiah. He is the God man, the incarnation of God himself, a visible representation of his glory. I mean, I could, I could read several passages about this white and dazzling brightness. Psalm 104 says that, that God wraps himself in light. Daniel 7, 9 says the ancient of days is bright, white, and sparkling. In all four gospel accounts, When we read about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are spiritual beings, angels, who are bright white, the text says. Not to mention in Revelation, Jesus is gonna be coming in on a white horse, We're all gonna be dressed in white. There is clearly something going on here. Jesus is embodying the glory of God. And he's doing it here on ground zero, this place where all of the surrounding cultures would have said, this is where we worship our gods. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I am the one true God. I'm not just the Messiah that Peter proclaimed in the last chapter. I am the God-man, the son of God. I love this. This is what Michael Heiser says. Jesus picks Mount Hermon to reveal to Peter, James, and John exactly who he is. The embodied glory essence of God. The divine name made visible by incarnation. The meaning is just as transparent. I'm putting the hostile powers of the unseen world on notice. I've come to earth to take back what is mine. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ fires a shot across the bow. I am here. I am the God man, the incarnation, and I am here to restore and to reconcile and to bring all of this back and to reconciliation, all of this sin. He's here, to, he's here to conquer sin and death. He is here to redeem mankind. He is here to set what was wrong and make it right. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. You might ask, why were Elijah and Moses up on the mountain with him? And I, I wish I could take you to the passages, but if there was anyone who could witness the glory of God, it was Moses, Right? I mean, it's in Exodus 33 where Moses gets to see the glory of God. And even though he only got to see God's back, he got to see the glory of God. And so when Jesus is in this embodied glory, Moses would be able to say, yep, I've seen that before, been there, done that. Yep, this is the guy. He is a witness to it. Elijah's also there. And in Kings, when he, after he calls fire down from heaven, He he goes off into the wilderness and he finds himself on a mountain and God reveals his glory to him, not through an earthquake, not through a fire, not through the wind, but through a still small voice. Again, Elijah also had been revealed the glory of God. And so if anyone could be a witness to it, it's Elijah and it's Moses as they are conversing with Jesus Christ they are bearing witness to not just any man, the God-man, the glory of God embodied in him. So that's what's happening on top of the mountain. Well, Peter doesn't know quite what to do in verse five. He says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. That might be the understatement of the of the world right it's good for us to be here yes you are seeing the glory of god yes peter it is good for you to be here and then not only that but he says let us make three tabernacles one for you one for moses and one for elijah and he says all this in verse 6 because he didn't know what he should say he's just talking that's what peter does sometimes he just starts talking and and in the matthew account of this mount transfiguration it says god interrupts him it's like be quiet for a minute man just enjoy this. There's only three of you who are getting to see Jesus Christ transformed in his glorified state. Just zip it for a minute. Have some social awareness and just take it in. Peter doesn't know what to do. He starts talking about building tents like we need another shrine on top of Mount Hermon. That's not what we need. What we need is to see just how amazing Jesus is. And when God does interrupt him, listen to these words, they probably sound very familiar because we've already heard them in Mark chapter one or a variation of them. God the Father says this in verse seven, a cloud appeared overshadowing them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. So God is saying, this is my unique, beloved God, man's son. He is worthy of your respect, your devotion, and your ear. Shot across the bow, and God confirms it. And now all of a sudden, we have to respond to it. We have this moment where we have to say, okay, Jesus has revealed himself not just to man, but to the the unseen realm, the, the supernatural. And now how do we respond? What's interesting is, is the last time God said these words at the baptism of Jesus in Mark chapter one, he immediately goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And now we're going to find Jesus is going to come down the mountain, and he's going to encounter a demon. It's amazing how this works, that now we're going to see the response of a demon to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at it in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the scribes were disputing with them. So the rest of the disciples, they're down at the foot of the mountain. The scribes are there, and apparently they're arguing. Verse 15, all of a sudden, when the whole crowd saw him, Jesus, they were amazed and ran to greet him. And then he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? So they see Jesus, the word amazed there might be surprised. It might be saying, hey, we were waiting on this guy. Some people think that maybe Jesus has a little bit of that glory still shining on him. Remember Moses' face when he came down from the mountain, it was glowing. And so maybe that's happening. We're not sure here, but for whatever reason, they see Jesus Christ and they run to him and they're surprised and amazed by him. And Jesus says, what are you guys arguing about? Verse 17, Out of the crowd, one man answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. So apparently there was a debate going on because the disciples had been brought this child who was demon possessed, who's foaming at the mouth, who's, who, who is convulsing. His body goes rigid and the disciples were unable to cast the demon out. Now that's important because we know in Mark chapter three, Jesus gave the disciples authority to do this. We also know in Mark chapter six that they had been successful at casting demons out, but for whatever reason, they were unable to do it this time. Jesus is frustrated. Jesus just coming down from this this mountain, revealing his glory, and now he sees that his disciples are unable to cast a demon out, says this. Verse 19, he replied to them, you unbelieving generation, How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. Unbelieving generation. Reminds me of Deuteronomy 32 verse five. Really the whole chapter is God looks at the nation of Israel and says, you you guys have forsaken me. You've forgotten me. You're a crooked and wicked generation that you have you have put me off. You are no longer recognizing me. You are You are trusting other things. And I think Jesus is looking at the disciples and saying, you're trying to go it alone instead of trusting me, calling out to me, using my power. So Jesus has enough of it and says, just bring the child to me. Verse 20, so they brought him to Jesus, him, and when the spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Now, this is incredibly interesting because there's a lot of exorcism that has happened in Mark chapter one through nine. And nearly every time the demon recognizes Jesus Christ and calls him son of the most high, Jesus of Nazareth, what do you wanna do with us? This demon doesn't speak. Matter of fact, this demon seizes the boy and convulses him. It's like the demon is holding on. Verse 21, Jesus says, how long has this been happening to him? From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That's what the father says. Love this. This demon is is holding on to this child for dear life you see when a shot goes across the bow you have a response and the response is in the 17th, 18th century, 19th century, it's to raise the flag and say, these are our colors, these are where we're from. Maybe the response should be to pull our sails down and to say, hey, we're slowing down. We don't mean to be aggressive here. Maybe the response is to send a lifeboat out to, to communicate. The the response is not to be aggressive back. And that's exactly what the demon is doing here. It, it, It doesn't need to address Jesus. It is holding on for dear life. And this man tells him, says, Lord, if you can help, please do. Jesus said this in verse 23, if you can Everything is possible to the one who believes, the one who trusts, the, the one who, who knows that I have the power. Oh, The, the issue's not about ability. The, the issue is about faith. Verse 24, "'Immediately the father of the boy cried out, "'I do believe.'" And then he says, "'Help my unbelief.'" Isn't that a great, isn't that a great sentence? I believe, but help my unbelief. Like I'm with you, but I I don't know how much I'm with you. I want to believe you, but I don't know how much I believe you. I I trust you, but I, I don't know how much I trust you. That's what he cries out. And Jesus just sees a little bit of it. And he says this in verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, Come out of him and never enter him again. Apparently this father had just enough faith. Matter of fact, when Matthew records this in his gospel, this is where he takes time to talk about the faith of a mustard seed. And apparently this father had just enough trust, just enough belief, just enough faith. And Jesus recognized it. And look at how he talked to that demon. He rebuked it. And then he said, come out and never come in it again. Never come in this child again. Absolute authority Jesus has here. Absolute control, absolute command. This lets us know that this demon was wanting to hang on for dear life. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's why I revealed myself. I am here to set this straight which is amazing, that after Jesus reveals his glory and comes down off the mountain, there's still evil in the world. There's still pain in the world. There's still suffering in the world. But Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to be the the salvation for this, to solve this problem by not only dying on the cross, but coming back to life three days later. So after Jesus says this to the demon, verse 26, then it came out shrieking and convulsing him violently. The boy became like a corpse so that many said, he's dead. I mean, this demon is out to absolutely ruin this child's life, even to take it from him. I wonder if the reality is, is we live in a world where evil knows it has lost, but because it knows it is lost because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's holding on for dear life to take anybody else it can with him. Think about that. This world, the enemy, It doesn't care about us. It only cares about death and destruction, pain and loss. When I see Jesus command this demon out and it just is trying to wreak total havoc, that's been going on for thousands of years. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 27, but Jesus taking him by the hand, raised him, and stood up. He's here to restore. He's here to bring healing. He's here to do this. Verse 28, after he went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind, this kind of demon, can come out by nothing but prayer, and some manuscripts say prayer and fasting. So I'm reading this, and and I'm thinking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus shows his glory. It's the shot across the bow, not only to man, but to the world, to the the natural and the supernatural, and then he comes down, and he he casts out this demon And there's something that jumps off the page to me that says, what is our response when we see Jesus as the God man, as the savior of the world, as the one who has come in the the glory of God? What do we do? How do we respond to that? For the disciples, unfortunately for them, they, they tried to go it alone. I'm not really sure what they were doing when they, when Jesus was up on the mountain and they were trying to cast out this demon. Maybe they were trying to use a certain technique or or mechanics or a certain phraseology that thought if I say this, this, and this, and do this, then the demon will come out. And instead of trusting in the power of God, and then you have this father who looks at Jesus and he realizes this man is something special. And how is he gonna respond to this man who is clearly more than just a teacher, more than just a rabbi, more than just a, a good man, but he is, he's got some authority that, that I need to bow down to. This is what I notice. In both of these instances, the disciple and the man, it says that the man cried out to Jesus. Isn't that what it says? He he cried out in verse 24. The father of the boy cried out, I do believe. But he also told the truth. Help my unbelief. I, I think that's what we do to Jesus Christ. I think that's what we do when we see that he is truly the incarnation, the glory of God. I think we cry out to him. But unfortunately, I think instead of being the man with the, a child who's demon-possessed, I think we end up becoming more like the disciples who instead of praying, that's what, that's what Jesus says. He says, you should have prayed. You should have cried out to me because that's what prayer is, a crying out to Jesus. Instead of praying, you tried to go it alone. We, we try to navigate this world full of evil and hurt and pain and loss, and, and we try to do it on our, on our own. And I think when when we see the shot across the bow, the warning, the, the idea that says Jesus is who he says he is, he is the embodied glory of God, that it ought to cry us, cause us to cry out to him. And just like this dad did, and just like he told the disciples, you gotta pray, you gotta pray. I, I, I don't know, I've just, I've I felt this weight here recently, just in my own life of, how much am I crying out to Jesus? How much am I telling him the truth about himself? And how much am I telling the truth about me? How, how much am I looking for his help? And how much am I just trying to pull myself up by the bootstraps and navigate this world on its own? How much am I trying to get on the boat with Jesus as he fires the warning shot? Or, or how much am I just out there paddling it away on my own strength with my own ideas and the wisdom of this age? Just really begin to settle in and say, man, I need to be crying out to Jesus. Because he's the God man. Because he is the embodiment of God's glory. Because he is the one who is the son of God. And his father said, listen to him. But here's the deal. You can't listen to Jesus if you never cry out to him. Isn't that what he says? This is my beloved son, Listen to him. Would you join me just in the next seven days? I'm just really trying to turn our heart and our mind and our, our wants and needs to Jesus, just to say. I need to cry out to you. I'm not crying out in some magical formula. I'm not crying out in some way that if I just do it, it'll be religious. No, I'm crying out because you are worthy for me to cry out to. Would you join me in that? I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe that just means you set the timer a few minutes earlier in the morning and and you pray, maybe that means you you skip a meal sometime this week and pray instead of eating lunch. Maybe that means you start journaling your prayers. Maybe that means you get with a group of people and and find a day this week to just pray together with no agenda, no meeting. We don't need to do a Bible study. We just get together and pray. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I think this passage tells us we have a Jesus. We have a savior. We have the son of God who has revealed himself and he wants us to cry out to him for help. Would you join me in that? Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, as I, I think about this passage and I, I see, I can't even imagine what Peter, James, and John saw. I can't even fathom how, how bright and the smoke and the and the and the dazzling white. I I can't imagine Moses and Elijah and them talking to each other. I, I can't even fathom it. And then to come down the mountain and to watch Jesus cast this demon out who was fighting for all it was worth to torment this child. And then to watch this man just cry out to you, just to be honest. Lord, I, I feel like I'm a disciple in the story where I'm just trying every day to do it on my own strength and to do it by my own will and to do it in my own way and and, and to do it according to, to what seems right in the eyes of man. And God, I just want to cry out to you. I want to tell you the truth about who you are and I want to be honest about who I am. And I think if we were all honest, we would say we believe you, but there are times where we we have unbelief and we're just asking for you to help us. My guess is, is this pandemic and, and all that is surrounded, it has probably caused lots of questioning, lots of doubt, lots of wondering. And I think, I think this text tells us to cry out to you. Lord, thank you for showing us who you are. Father, thank you for telling us this is your beloved, unique son and we can listen to him. Help us to cry out so we can do it. We love you, Lord. It's in your son's name. Amen.